Well, we for the summer are in the first letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament. So today we're in chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, uh, 14 through 17. And I'm going to read the scripture for you today. So would you receive it? Paul wrote this. I am not writing to shame you, but to warn you, my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful to the Lord. He will remind you my way of life in Christ Jesus which agrees what I teach everywhere, everywhere in the church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This last week, Keith and I went to the parent version of college orientation. On the first morning that we were at the parent version of college orientation, the academic dean addressed us. And he told the parents that our children, according to the state of Texas, are now adults and that his office cannot release our child's records or information directly to us without a waiver. So if my child, my college student, gets into some academic trouble in the next few years, she will be called on to address it herself. I cannot uh, email the academic dean and expect to get a response. I cannot call his office and expect to get any details. But, he said, let me give you a tip. Let me give you some advice. You could call your child before she comes to a meeting in my office, and you could tell her some things to say. You could email or text your child before she comes to a meeting in my office, and you could give her some questions to ask me. He said, by the way, what you would be doing is a very sound educational practice called modeling. And modeling or imitation, it works. Modeling is when we say to someone else, watch what I do, and then you do it. It's exactly what Paul is telling the Corinthians. He writes to them, imitate me. Watch what I do. And then you do it. Now, modeling as an education practice works in small things as well as big, large things. About a week ago, I was sitting in a workshop. And the leader of the workshop was talking about her 18-month-old nephew who plays with that toy. It's been around forever. It's like stackable plastic rings. I can't remember if that's play school or who makes that thing. But she was talking about how he was playing with those rings, and he wasn't stacking them. Instead, he was taking them, those little donuts. He was setting them on their edge and spinning them. And then he's 18 months old. He picks one off the floor, and he hands it to her like you do it. Well, she tries it, and she doesn't do it. So he picks up another one, slowly and deliberately. He sets it on its edge, pinches it between his thumb and his fingers, and spins it. Like, you dummy, this is how you do it. (laughs) Try this. Watch me. Do what I do. 
It works in very small kind of uh, kinesthetic physical activities like spinning a plastic donut, but it also works for bigger concepts as well. David Brooks wrote a book this year called The Road to Character, and in his book he says that strong inner character is best obtained by watching and following others. So we don't get strong inner character in a classroom. We don't get strong inner character by reading an email from someone who's wise or by reading their tweet, but instead we get strong inner character by following someone, by watching them. When we see someone who has this strong inner character, it's like a magnetic attraction for us, someone who is kind, humble, respectful, self-disciplined, who radiates joy and is delighted by the people around them. Well, we want some of that. And when we're with that person, it's like we are better people. That's how it begins to work. We're with that person. We become better people. And who they are is transmitted to us. That's exactly what Brooks wrote. He wrote this. It's not what these people say to us that we remember as much as the totality of their life is transmitted to us. The Gospels report that many, Jesus had many very wise teachings and sayings, and we often teach on those in the church. But maybe the most important thing that Jesus said to those who lived in the same time that he did were three words. Those who gathered around him to his disciples, he often said, come and follow me. Ray Vanderland, who is a Bible teacher, has picked up on this. So if you watch a video that's done by Ray Vanderland or you have the opportunity to travel with him or one of his disciples, you're going to hear those three words, come and follow me. It's not the intellectual concepts that he so much wants to teach you. What he wants you to see is to walk the way that I walk. Do what I do. Become like me. If you want to learn, stick close. The deepest part of my identity will be transmitted to you. Jesus said that to his followers. And followers of Jesus are still saying to that that same thing today to those of us who those who come behind us. When Jesus wants to drive this point even further home in the Gospel of John, he gives them a word picture. And the word picture that he says about following me, sticking close to me, is about a vine with branches. Remember, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, remain in me, and you will bear much fruit. Now, there are a couple of reasons that Paul wants the Corinthians to follow him, to imitate him, and a couple of things he wants them to see, and he wants us to see, I believe, why this imitation practice works so well in Christian community. Because it does work in the world. It works in the classroom. But why does it work especially well when we gather together as the faithful? Well, the first reason that it works so well is because it's free of shame. Did you notice that in the very first verse that I read? Paul said, I am not writing this to shame you. This is not about shame. That's a good thing. 
Because while shame seems to teach quite effectively, it does not teach things that we as Christians want to learn or we want our children to learn. Shame works against the Christian principle of identity, that we are beloved children of God. Shame is very different from guilt. Guilt, in most instances, is a warning sign. And we can read that warning sign and behave differently. We see that warning sign. We see that we've done something wrong. And that's all right because even as Christians, we are still human. We make mistakes. So we see the warning light and we repent. We change directions and we live into the forgiveness that's a part of our identity. But shame, shame is different. It tells us not that we've done something wrong, but that we are essentially wrong. Shame is about identity. It communicates to us that something that's very essential about us is off. It's wrong. It needs to be changed. Changed. It's unlovable. So Paul says, this is not my intention. He's not writing to the Corinthians to cut them off or to tell them that they're hopeless losers, that they'll never get it right. No, Paul wants the Corinthians to see that there are some things that they're doing that are a little bit off, that need to be changed, that he does, in fact, uh, feel very hopeful for them. He does write out of hope. Tim Madigan was a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram in the 1990s, and he was given the assignment to write a profile on the children's television icon, Fred Rogers. Remember him? He was Mr. Rogers to many of us. Much to Madigan's surprise, he became pretty good friends with Mr. Rogers as he interviewed them, and they corresponded with one another in their friendship through email and letters. In the late 1990s, Tim decided that he needed to write Fred to give him some bad news. The bad news was that after years of counseling and struggle, he was going to be separating from his wife. And he admitted in this letter that he wrote that he was the cause of it, that he was leaving. He would be the one that was leaving the home. And he says, how difficult it was to admit this to a man who had devoted his life to families and to children. So he sent the letter off and kind of waited for a response. A week later, a response came, and this is what Fred Rogers wrote. My dear Tim, bless your heart. I feel for you, for you all. But Tim, please know that I would never forsake you, and I would never be disappointed in you, that I would never stop loving you. How I wish we could be closer geographically. I'd get in my car, drive to your house, knock on your door, and when you answered, I'd hug you tight. You are a beautiful man inside and out, and those who care about you are privileged to share your pain. As for suffering, I believe that there are fewer people than ever who escape, measure, who escape major suffering in this life. In fact, I'm convinced that the kingdom of God is for the brokenhearted. You write of powerlessness. Join the club. We're not in control. God is. Our trust and affection run very deep. You know you are in my prayers now and always. If you ever need me, you have only to call and I will do my best to get to you or you to me. You are my beloved brother, Tim. You are God's beloved son. 
No shame. No shame in that relationship of modeling, in that relationship of imitation, in that relationship of father and son that exists in the Christian community. The second thing I want you to see about imitation in the church is that it is about the love that a good father has for a son. Paul writes that he is a father to the Corinthians. He says, I'm not your guardian. You have had 10,000 guardians. Another way that we might translate that is, I'm not your babysitter. (laughs) I'm not like a babysitter to you. I am a father to you. The quintessential picture of a father for the Christian church is found in the center of Luke's gospel. It's in that story of the prodigal son. Now, we often think of that parable as a story just about the son, right? It's a story about the wayward child. But I believe more importantly, it is a picture of a good father's love. This is a picture of what a really good father looks like. Henry Nouwen said this about it. The only authority that the father has, that the father practices in the prodigal son, is the authority of compassion. So this is not a father who, when the son comes to him and asks for his inheritance, which is basically saying, I wish you were dead. This is not a father that says, how dare you? This is not a father that, when the son leaves, chases him down the road. But this is a father who, when the son comes home, the wayward son comes home, has spent all of the inheritance, that father rejoices. And that father welcomes him home. He doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't say what I would say, which is, I told you so. But no, this is a father who celebrates, and this is a father who practices compassion. It occurs to me when I read this story of the prodigal son and when I read in the Bible about Paul's relationship with the Corinthians that there is no child, no son, no daughter who is beyond hope, who is outside of a father's love. If there were a child that was outside of the father's love, it would be the prodigal son. If there were a child that were outside of the love of a father, it would be Timothy. Timothy, the one that Paul is sending to the Corinthians. Paul says, this is my beloved son, Timothy. He has followed me. Now you follow him. Timothy would be uh, what the first uh, century people in Palestine called a mumser. He was born of an improper union. So his mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek. And Deuteronomy 23 verse 2 says, Anyone born of an improper marriage may not be permitted into the Lord's assembly, even to ten generations. So Timothy would not have been allowed to worship with the uh, Jewish community. Timothy would not have been allowed to study. Timothy would not have been allowed to marry. You couldn't pick a person less likely to be Paul's co-worker. You couldn't pick a person less likely for Paul to call my son. This is my beloved son. The Corinthians are in urgent need of a role model. Timothy has modeled himself after Paul, and Paul says, I'm sending him to you. This is your role model, my beloved son, Timothy. Now, I am raising um, three children in this church. I guess one of them's raised. I think she's done. We're sticking a fork in her. 
And I am especially grateful for this congregation, for the way that they've helped me raise my children. I'm glad that they've been here, not because we have such wonderful programming like the Vacation Bible School that we had this week. I'm glad that they've been here, not because we have dynamic teaching like we do in Confirmation. But I'm really glad that they are a part of this congregation because there are people in this church that have taken significant interest in who they are and they've let them get close enough to them to see how they live the Christian life. One one of my oldest daughter's Claire's grown-up friends gave her a present for graduation this week and it was a book. And in the book is primarily photographs of things in nature with just uh, scripture passages and inspirational thoughts on other pages. But in the front of the book, this friend wrote, Claire, you appreciate beauty. I appreciate beauty. A book like this helps me every day as I walk with Christ. You know, having somebody like that who sees something special in you, significant in you, and wants you to see how they live out the faith is important. My son came to Vacation Bible School this week, and he didn't come for the great music or the wonderful teaching, which they had both. But he got up every day to come because he wanted to follow the teen helper around in his group. And I was so thankful for that guy that Daniel would want to be up here following him around, someone that's 10 years beyond him in the faith. We live in a difficult time for the church, for every church. Some have proposed that churches need to get with the computer age, that if we just develop great websites, we have good blogs and send out catchy tweets, that that will save the church. Some have said that bad theology is going to kill the church. Please. We've survived 10,000 bad theologians at least. (laughs) But let me give you a peek at the kryptonite. This is the kryptonite that Paul would point out. What could kill the church is us failing to come together in person as multi-generational faithful disciples. What could kill the church is all of us sitting at home listening to and reading really good theology taught by the guardians of the faith. What could kill the church is a shallow belief that touches every person on this globe but doesn't have the depth to transform lives. Richard Hayes, who's a theologian, wrote, The kingdom of God does not consist of good talk, but the kingdom of God consists of power, and that power is evident when two or more are together in Christ's name. Are you close enough to the kingdom of God? Who are you following? Who's following you? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful this day for the faithful remnant that has always been present, that has sought your way. We are especially thankful for those fathers and mothers that have gone before us, that have shown us how to walk the walk, 
how to live the life that Christ lived and would have us live. We are also thankful, Lord, for those who come behind us, those who are watching us walk down the path that leads to you. Lord, we ask that you would grant that protection for them and that you would allow us to be transparent, that they would see your love and your acceptance and your plan for them through us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.